the green-eyed archangels, from where the sun sank, six-gun coffin lids squeaked as the six-gun soldiers sat up staring at the dark sky. Their ghost-like skin where American blood flowed, their dark horses pawing at the earth, bringing death with their payload. They checked their hearts for shards of oak. None there. That was a plus as they stood ready to fly. They climbed grim and sour to their black sky chariots, frames dark as night, night darker than soot. It looked like a fight. Went up from the links, there rose such a clatter, a ruckus of Ralphus and Hornady splatter. The stalkers were up now, they rested by day. They rose up at dusk to slap the night away, until dawn. Six guns didn't miss, night stalkers didn't quit. Rangers led the way. Hit them hard, hit them again. Valare Optimus. Written by George E. Han IV. Battle of Aditha Dam. Tonight on the DTD podcast, we have a guy that I've been waiting a long time to talk to. It's Greg Gravy Coker, and he's going to tell us about doing bad things to bad people all over the earth. So let's get into it. Is this not why you were here? How about no, you crazy Dutch bastard? What we've got here is failure to communicate. 60% of the time, it works every time. That doesn't make sense. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points. And may God have mercy on your soul. That's cute. I remember when I had my first beer. Why so serious? I am serious. And don't call me so. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD podcast. Like I told you, we have a great one tonight. He wrote a book, Death Waits in the Dark, Six Guns. Don't miss. That's exactly right. Six Guns, don't miss. (laughs) I've been waiting a while to talk to this guy, so let's get right into it. Greg, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you, sir. It's, It's such an honor, and it's an honor to... You know, Walkwood Giants, I mean, Kyle Lamb's been a close, close friend of mine for many, many years. I worked with Tom Satterley, Brad Thomas, I mean, all those heroes out there, doggone, they're they're my heroes, and I, I just love every one of them. So. Well, I tell yeah, you what, be here. Thank yeah, you. They, they have stories, but I'm telling you what, after reading this book, you have got some stories. You have been there, done that, seen that, <sighs> and we have a lot of stuff to talk about that I had no idea was going on, but... I want to kind of start off the interview in a somber kind of mode. I know that I don't like to start things usually sad, but I understand in talking to you and reading the book that the most important thing I think that you did in this book was to talk about your friend. Uh, Not only him being your friend during all those missions, uh, during the military, but your ultimate uh, loss to suicide with him. Um, And I think it's an important thing that we talk about because it happens more often than people think. And we look at these guys, and I've said it before on the show, we look at these warriors, these heroes, and we think that they're robots and it doesn't affect them. 
And it has not only affected you, but him and by him with what happened, uh, it has affected you. Now, I want to go from your book and talk about how you describe Leon real quick. You say, yeah, brother Leon Hansen was the man. What a great guy, Leon. He was among many other things, a complex sort of fella. Intelligent, charismatic, sterling sense of humor, just a downright scholarly man of letters. He was a sponge for knowledge who read most anything he could get his hands on, and his hands could get on a lot of stuff, so he was perpetually reading. You can tell from hearing this book, hearing your audio that you sent to me, uh, and reading the book itself, how much he meant to you. So I just want to start out with talking about him as a person and as your friend. Yes, sir. Leon was, uh, he, he was more than a brother. I mean, we were, we were close, close friends. We'd met in the nineties and he was a fire supporter for Delta and he had a background in the Rangers. He was two seven five, but we, we just, we hit it off at the very beginning. I was doing a gun smoke with those guys when I first met him many, many years ago. And we just, we became close, close friends. And I just miss him every day. I, I really do. Think about him many times. I even think a few times he's he's come down to, to talk to me a little bit. But, yeah, he was an interesting fella. He was highly intelligent. And, you know, like most of us, we're at the pinnacle of our career. We're at the best place you could possibly be as an assaulter or as an aviator. And I just, I try to wrap my head around it every day because I, I do think about Leon many, many times during the day. And I, I feel that, you know, they just looking back and understanding what we all go through is that, there's, I've known, I have two commonalities that I've identified. One is that they lose hope, and two, they don't have a loving God at, at the time in which that event takes place. And I, like I said in the book, I talked to Leon on, on Wednesday, and, oh, man, Friday just, I, I don't know, just something was, on my mind he was in my heart and i didn't i wanted to call him but for some reason i didn't and then i got the call saturday morning from his son-in-law that you know he had taken his life and those type of men our our type of men we just you know we just do it i mean there's it's unfortunate that so many of my friends over the years guys i've known guys i've worked with that have taken their life and and it just, it's heartbreaking. It really is. Well, when you talk about him, I, I know that you didn't get a lot of, let's say, closure with him. Uh, and I know that you spent some time with his son-in-law, with his daughter. Um, did yes. did you guys ever get into maybe finding a reason why? I mean, other than the obvious reason why, did, did we ever maybe drill down a little bit and figure out what was maybe the, that, that match that struck the, the end? Absolutely. You know, they, these men, they lose hope that that's the big, you know, life leaves 
uh, can't find work, out of money, you know, whatever the case, and it, it just compounds. And and alcohol and drugs, you know, they're they're a big part of it. So you know, we we go through those emotions, and you know, we'll get sad. Sadness leads to fear. Fear leads to anger, and then anger leads to things that you know we do that perhaps we wish we hadn't have done. And I think that Leon and, and those like him, they're just, they're hurting so bad. And they just, you know, they just, I just sitting here tonight, I, I just, I can't, I can't grasp it. I just can't because we loved each other and we're always there for each other. So I, I don't, man, I just, I wish I could put my finger on it and, and help help guys and gals out there you know both veterans first responders you know and and we go back to pts tom and i've talked about it kyle and i've talked i've talked to hundreds of people about it but i i'm on a crusade to change it because pts can happen to anybody i mean a person that's been in a vehicle accident rape you know abused as a child and there's different degrees of PTS. And for me personally, I wish they call it, I want to name it PCS, post-combat stress, because that's what it is. It's long-term, years and years and years that, you know, we, we go through this and constantly deploying. And when you come home, there's no rest. There's, you got to stay on the train and the train never stops. Because you're, you know, you're training for the next mission, or you're training up new people in your units, and then, hey, guess what? It's time to deploy again for a hundred days. So then you go back in the box and do what you do. So yeah, it, it's it wears on you. But I, I really, I really would wish that they would differentiate. And I've read all the way back to World War II from them doing studies on. You know, World War II vets, Korea, Vietnam, and then to up to current. So, and especially first responders, there's, you know, there's been somewhat of a closed eye on first responders. And the last time I checked, the VA did a study about 18 to 24 months ago, and it's, it's 26 veterans per day is what the VA put out. And it's, it's, probably pretty close with first responders, so law enforcement, medical personnel, you know, those folks. So it's, in any other country to me, that's just for veterans, that's 10,000 humans a year, it would be an epidemic, but it's, it's not looked at as an epidemic in this, and we're talking years. And what was interesting to me, the mean age, I think the last I checked was 50 years old. So we're looking at, you know, Vietnam vets are, are huge in that in that group of folks. Well, not only are you looking at Vietnam vets with that, you're looking at someone who has lived a lot of their life already. That has gotten out the family, Absolutely. the jobs, the careers, college. I mean, they, they have come, and by no means is 50. I mean, 50 is not old at all. What I mean to say with no. that, though, is that 
we are talking about not a, a 20 year old, a 21 year old who thinks that everything that happens is the end of the world. We're talking about people that have lived life, have been around and seen it. Now, a couple of the yeah, things sure. from the book that, that I kind of want your opinion on, cause I think you probably feel the same way as me. I think one of the biggest problems that we have when you talk about the VA, is you said that they do a study where they say 26 a day, I think fundamentally the VA is set up in a bad situation. I think there's a no win for the VA one, because most of the time you're getting people that really don't care that are working there. There's some that do, I'm not going to take that away from anything, but the answer to it is, is uh, push more pills, uh, up their percentage, uh, just do whatever gets them in and gets them out. Now on the flip side of that coin, of course that happens because of how overwhelmed they are. So I guess my question to you is, don't you think with all these organizations that we have organizations that you're part of, that's the basis of where we need to go. We have to start at the foundation of it because I think that's where we're getting off the tracks is right there. Yes, sir. Absolutely. I, I agree a hundred percent. And unfortunately for vets is it, the VA has just been overwhelmed. Absolutely. So all these other organizations, these nonprofits, they saw this issue and I actually I've talked to a couple of doctors about this, very detailed. And so anytime this country goes to war, they they bring these medical professionals together and they they try to calculate what best is gonna happen. You know, how many guys are gonna be number one, killed in action. Number two, how many are gonna lose one leg? How many are gonna lose two legs? How many are will lose an arm. Well, due to the, the training that our medics receive, that our doctors receive now, and technology, man, we, we, we surpass that golden hour in combat. And I mean, these kids out there, you know, that are medics working on, on people, that, I, it's just, they're just unbelievable. So, I mean, simple things like, you know, a darn tourniquet have that, that tourniquet has saved so many lives throughout the twenty plus years that we've been been at war. Yes, sir. Yeah, and the VA just got overwhelmed. Well, and 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 that was the next part of the question to you. I, I want to talk about the difference between because I think there is a distinct difference in Vietnam PTS and our current PTS. I think we're looking at two different things. And the reason I say that is because when you look at Vietnam, we had a set amount of time that that was. There were bad things that happened. The war that you fought in, the war on terror, it's still going on, and it's been going on for 20-plus years. If you can't ever yeah. cycle out of that, how do we fix the problem? Yes, yeah, so that in that, our leadership... I mean, all the way at the top, they, they, they deal with that daily. And it, it was interesting. I just watched the documentary the other night. I, I couldn't sleep. <laughs> yeah, I go and I go to documentaries, but it was about, it was a study on PTS from, from the civil war until 2010. 
I believe is is how long they look back and it was it was extremely interesting to me and you know and the numbers and of course it's, it's changed names and it's changed faces over the year from shell shock to you know whatever, whatever the case is they call it today and they call it tomorrow but the i think one of the big issues with our vietnam guys is that man they got treated like crap when they came home no one appreciated them they got spit on at airports called baby killers and you know and that has a psychological effect because you take a young man that is 19 he goes to war comes back he's 20 years old or or even 19 i mean some of them are 18 year olds going and they come back and they're proud of their service and what they did and then they get treated like the like they did when they came home and uh, america just did not accept them and i i just every time i see a vietnam vet he's wearing a hat or a t-shirt i walk up to him i shake his hand and i tell him thank you for your service and welcome home and that that means a lot to those guys it really does. Well, because they, they never got it, you know. Uh, and, and I think, no. though, the problem no. with, with the war that we're talking about with that you fought was they weren't they were treated as heroes. You guys were treated as heroes when you came home. But you were only home yes. for 90 days, and then you were back over. And then you were <laughs> home for 90 days, and then you were back over. It it's different yes. when when you never get welcome back into the country and when you get welcome back 15 times into the country there's a huge difference and and with guys like yeah. you and guys like Brad T that we're talking about Kyle all those guys Tom uh it's never ending oh. it, it's just re-racking no. you're 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 just going right back into it yes sir yeah you just you continue on the train and you go do your job and you know people have asked me well, why why do you do it well you do it for the guy on the left and the right and i mean that that's the bottom line and i mean for all of us it was oh man i you know i didn't want to leave <laughs> like no you you've got to go home because i was afraid i might miss something or you know whatever the case but holy cow god put me in in so many places at, at so many definitive times and you know and i'll go back to kyle lamb he always told me over years he, he'd say gravy if it's not written it didn't happen please start start putting some of your your stories down and and george hand was the same george was an a squatter in uh in delta and he would yeah, he, he would just beat me up. He was like, dude, you got to write some stories, man. You just, let's just start, you know, somewhere. So. Well, I think that's a great segue. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's get into some of those stories. So I want to talk first about the flight commander of operations. Now, I never knew this was like a possibility. So you go over there expecting to be a night stalker and, and you are, but they place you in a different role and they place you on a spooky gunship. And they kind of make you, <laughs> yeah. they kind of make you the captain of all aerial. That I mean, like no one's doing anything with without Gravy's permission. Um, and so, yeah. when you get over there and you're expecting to do what you've trained to do your whole career, and they say, "Hey, we're going to put you on this plane," what's the first thought that goes through your mind on that? Oh man, I was I was just 
I was a little bit angry, I, I guess, but I was also honored that, you know, Leon was part of that. And the command from Delta, some of them had talked to me and said, hey, would you, cons and the 160th, they said, would you come over as the FSO, the fire support officer for the task force? And, and it was just timing. I mean, one guy just left. They had a new guy come in, you know, and us, us old hats. And, you know, we've been there and done that. And, and we've trained to do this our whole lives. And it, it, we're a very close-knit family. And we already know what a guy's thinking on the ground or, you know, it just goes to that. So I said, okay. And the commander of Delta Force had talked to me about it. And I said, well, yes, sir, but just remember, I'm an A86 gun pilot. <laughs> and, you know, I might, I've missed my chances up until now, but, you know, and, and I always told guys, be careful what you wish for. So that, that was, yeah, it, it was, I was honored that they'd asked me to do it. And I just, I just wanted to do a good job. And, that's how I went into it and in Afghanistan, October 2001. Yeah, so let's talk about that. That was the longest recorded air assault mission, correct? It was uh, 10 hours from wheels up to the target, right? That's correct. Yeah, so... It was over a 1,000-mile air assault. And so can we go into a little bit about <laughs> why they chose to make it that long of a trip? Why... Uh, maybe some of the logistics to it, something that people wouldn't know if they just read a book or they see it on what went behind it, because you were at the forefront of kind of planning this operation. Yes, sir. Myself and Leon and then another fire support officer, but that was, it just made sense. Number one. And number two is that we, we cannot get permission to launch from any of those countries around Afghanistan. So, you know, the logistics of it was like, okay, well, we got a ship, so we have capabilities. So, okay, we're just, we're gonna have to do this off the ship. And we were, we were running through plans, man. It was, I mean, it was a million miles an hour. And so, and everybody would put their ideas in because as, special operators you know we always say that we get we get paid to think outside the box <laughs> and, and man i mean there were some we had some crazy ideas but that that just made the most sense at that time that we could get maximum force on the target and everybody get home safe yes, well can you walk us through kind of the operation from uh, we don't have to go into all the details, but can you walk us through? Cause it's pretty interesting how it happened because you know, you go by the motto over and over in the book, 30 seconds in front or behind um, plus or minus plus or minus. And uh, you are not only doing 30 seconds plus or minus on your end, you're doing it for every gunship airship, everything that's in the air that night. So you have that added. Now I want you to explain though, just how much firepower was in the air that night, because it is unbelievable when you hear this story, just how many people, uh, ships, 
uh, refueling, armament, all these guys. Can you go into how much was in this mission? Yes, sir. It's I, I looking back, I was like, wow, I, I can't believe, you know, that we did this. <laughs> Number one, to get all the, I think there were 68 fixed wing in the initial attack on Afghanistan at, at the objective there. And of course, there was the assault force, so we had DAP our armed Black Hawk helicopters, and then we had our six Chinooks with the assaulters in them, and all those guys took off from the ship, went so, in country, and then, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead, go ahead. I was going to ask you, uh, how many, if, if you have six Chinooks, how many assaulters is that? Oh, goodness. I'm trying to, I don't know, there are probably 40, 40 guys per aircraft, 30 or 40 guys per aircraft. Yes, sir. But it, it goes back to our, how we plan. And I mean, we plan down. We're the best planners in the world, <laughs> bar none. And I mean, we plan and plan and plan and plan. And, you know, and, and Mr. Murphy always raised his ugly head. And he, he did a couple times that night. Just, I mean, like the refuel. <laughs> and, yeah, and some of those things I go into in the book, um, you know, one of the Chinooks kind of had a hard landing. It, it was just hundreds of hundreds of people coming together and putting the plan together and then briefing the plan. And, of course, the commander signs off on it. General Daly, at the time, he was TF Sword commander. And, you know, all the guys flying and, of course, many all the fixed wing stuff it was you know they weren't with us so we had to communicate through phone or through emails or whatever the case but yeah we 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 came up with a plan and had our coordination and all of our fires coordination and we executed and our you know for the night stalkers our standard is plus or minus 30 seconds on time on target anywhere in the world and we live and die by that standard because people's lives depend on that standard. And they know, the ground force knows, okay, night stalkers are supporting us. They're going to be here when they tell us they're going to be here. So, but it was all, you know, it was all determined on time. It was all, you know, that hit time, that H hour on that D day is, yeah, it was very, very critical. <laughs> I kind of had the weight of all that on my shoulders there at different times. Not kind of, you did not, not kind of at all. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, sir. So when you're coming in, you're, you're, uh, I, I want to talk about the ship that you're on. Cause it has quite a bit of firepower on it. Um, and I want to yes. know the difference. You're, you fly an attack helicopter. You let them know, hey, look, I'm an attack helicopter pilot. I'm going to do this for you as long as on the backside I'm going to get to fly my attack helicopter. Now, the difference, because your little bird is is a bad son of a bitch, I'm telling you. Uh, it's probably the coolest helicopter ever made. Uh, and And it comes like a ball of fire. The difference, though, when you watch these these spookies, go off onto the targets 
what's the difference? What's going through your head as they first, because they've got 105s on there. They've got everything going out of this ship. So first thoughts as you, you go into the battle. Yes, sir. And it, as a fire supporter and a, you know, a professional in that arena that, you know, we, that's another thing that we have to do. We have to pick the correct weapon for that target. So is it a hard target? Is it armor? Is it personnel? And just with the AC-130U models, you know, we, yes, it, it's just an amazing, you know, it's, a, it's an amazing aircraft with all kinds of firepower and we can pick that specific weapon for that target. So we've got, you know, the Gatling gun, we've got the 40 Mike Mike Bofors and then the 105. So depending on what it is, then we can, we can weapon air that thing to help us with success on that target. But my primary job was once we went feet dry was to recon the route that the Chinooks and the Daps would take to the objective and make sure it was clear, make sure there wasn't any ADA or early warning in it. And we had, we'd flown it a couple nights prior just to make sure, set the conditions of the battlefield. But that night, you know, any, any possibility of a threat, then I made that decision to engage it, you know, with the crew of that aircraft. So yeah, it, it was, it was quite a show. It, it truly was. How much battle damage do you think your ship did that night? Oh goodness. <laughs> I, I have off the top of my head, man. I don't, it was a bunch. I and, mean, we did a lot of killing. And, and so that night it wasn't only you and a spooky. There was one other spooky in the area, right? Or three. I'm sorry. There were three of you. Nope. Correct. They were flying three, at different layers. Three AC-130s. Right. Correct. Yep. We all had pre-planned targets, inner, outer, and then, you know, to protect the force. And then there were two other spookies that went to the other objective that where the Rangers did a airfield seizure, did a combat jump into there to secure it. And so uh, you're bringing in all kinds of, like we said, you clear the routes, um, and you're bringing in not only your birds, but you're bringing in fixed wing. What kind of fixed wing are we talking about that night? Man, everything in the in the inventory. <laughs> I, was, I mean, from from B ones to B fifty twos, F sixteens, F fifteens, F eighteens. We even had some British tornadoes. It was. Yeah, it, it was quite the assortment, for sure. So do you think that was because, because it, it kind of blew my mind, uh, when I read how much that you had in the area, uh, do you think that was that whole shock and awe thing that, that we were going to put the right foot down the very first step we take and show them we're not fucking around over here this time? Yes, yes, absolutely. That, that was one of our the intents of the commander and we've been operating weeks prior to that in that battle space to one set the conditions find targets of opportunity you know go in there pound their air defenses pound you know whatever we could find i mean that our roe 
employee rules of engagement were pretty clear, you know, shoot, shoot, find, shoot, and kill the enemy. So that was. And, and I think it was a little different because you, I mean, you yourself called it D-Day operations. So, I mean, that that is technically, you're saying uh, we're here to, to show you what we've got. And, and that night they really learned it. I mean, just on all the different things, even how you talked about. So the Chinook makes a hard landing. Uh, the people get out, it pulls away. There's another Chinook circling to come back and get those guys. There were ones on standby, just waiting to come back and get those guys when they were done assaulting their compound. So I guess my big question of it is, is I'm trying to look at it all in my head. You have this many ships in the air, what is it like? I mean, is, is, is just a radio going bananas? Like everyone talking, uh, what is going on in the ship? It, I mean, it's got to be crazy in there with that much firepower, not only in the air, but on the ground. Yes, sir. It, it's controlled chaos. <laughs> it's the best way I can put it. But again, it goes back to our, our planning and how we, we conduct detailed planning and everybody knows the plan. Everybody has a piece and a part. And it's, you know, like I said earlier, it was, it was all timed. It was dedicated or predicated on that H hour. So it was that, let's just say 2,200 hours, you know, the B1s and then the B52, the X. And so we, we calculate working with all those crews is, Hey, how much, Time you need on target to drop whatever you're going to drop and then it then we just go right to the next airframe the next airframe the next one and i mean once we got it started and i we all worked as a team together to figure out that we wouldn't be late because of our refuel faux pas over the middle of the ocean and uh yeah i made that call to the chinooks i'm like hey we're Everything's go, you know, we're caught up. We got gas and, and let, let's hit it on time on target. And, and uh, yeah, really control chaos. Yeah. And really you, you say a snafu with the fuel and stuff, but it wasn't that in the end, it didn't end up being that big of a deal. No, because no, but it sure didn't. It sure didn't make me sweat though. Yeah. A little bit. Well, and I think the pilot kind of figured out a way to get you there and kind of save some time and all that kind of stuff. And you seem to get along with that. Now there was one person on this ship that you did not get along with. And I want to talk about him oh, <laughs> and, and I want to talk oh, about now, good. listen, Greg, I want to hear your true thoughts on this guy. Uh, you named him monkey. There became a monkey rule, and there was some stuff that came behind that. And and I really want to talk about this guy and how you handled this guy before, during, and after the mission. Well, there, there wasn't a whole lot of before. You did see him, though, right? showed up. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we didn't see him in any, <laughs> any of our planning or, you know, he came to the big brief, and I was like, who is this? guy you know i mean we've been up for days and hundreds and hundreds of man hours planning this thing and here comes a strap hanger to you know get on the big hit night mission on the ac-130 and yeah he just he didn't have situational awareness and uh you know i talked i i've become very close with that crew on that ac-130 man they they're just and all those guys are just 
man, they're the best of the best. And it, it was, I mean, we had some pretty crazy times on that airplane. We sure did. And I talked to the AC, the aircraft commander, and I'll just call him Swede. Where, you know, we were just like, okay, you know, we'll put him back in the corner and kind of give him some, a bowl of cereal or some Jolly Ranchers. Tell you know, shut the hell up and just sit back there and watch. Now, was yeah. his what was his attitude towards you as he came up? Because he was a he was a SEAL, correct? No, he was a naval aviator, but he was the SEAL Team Six liaison officer. LMO. Okay, okay. Supposedly a fires guy, but we didn't know. No one knew him. <laughs> yeah, he just shows up. So you, you put him on the plane, and he kind of just takes his corner, as you say, and drools on himself and falls asleep during the, the battle and, and all these kind of things. Uh, and you, your, your temper is losing with him rapidly uh, as the, the flight and the mission goes on. And then he kind of makes his own big faux pas and, uh, by trying to drop ordnance on our own troops. Yes, it I, I really didn't pay much attention to him once the battle started because every one of us on that airplane, we were busy, man. We were, right. you know, I was coordinating aircraft and pushing aircraft and making sure everybody was where they're supposed to be. And I was listening for the assault force as they were, you know, they hit the release point and letting everybody know that, hey, here comes the assault force. They're inbound. You know, do, have we engaged the targets that we needed to engage to ensure that they get in there safely? And I, I mean, everybody was just busy. Right. And I had a matrix where I was keeping track of every, you know, all the flights of aircraft and, of course, our helicopters. And But I, I really didn't pay much attention until the battle really started. And I, I did catch him out of the corner of my eye a few times. He was kind of up in his seat and... You know, not saying much. So, but it, it wasn't until that, I mean, the, the mission was completed successfully. And, you know, I called in the Chinooks for Exville. And I believe Leon had, had, Leon was on target. He was the fire support NCO for that mission for Delta. And, uh, yeah, I was just, I was just happy to hear his voice and, knew the guys had done a great, great job. And again, we were busy engaging targets outside of that target area. And of course the other two AC 130s, they were busy also. But yeah, and then I heard, I heard this radio call and we were trying to coordinate all the, the hooks to get in to pick up the ground force. And I'm like, wait a minute, who is that? You know, I'm trying to look, and and I was like, and then I hear him talking, talking these fixed wing bombers in. I believe they were F-18s. It was a flight of them to drop on a on an NAI named area of interest that we had pre-planned. Well, it was on the, I mean, on the route that the Chinooks were currently coming out on, and I hear the the lead fighter pilot. You know, he calls IP inbound. Well, now I'm really, I'm like, okay, what's going on? It's like, then I hear him call, hey, I, I have the target inbound hot. And that's when I just said, 
you know, break, 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 cease fire, cease fire, cease fire, knock it off, knock it off. And then I look over and I see this, this <laughs> dumbass calling it no situational awareness whatsoever. None. He didn't know, he didn't know anything. So I just, I jumped up. <laughs> I, I was pretty angry at this point and I just grabbed him and I started beating the hell out of him. <laughs> I told him to get off the radio. We were seconds out from dropping ordinance on those Chinooks. And they were already having a rough night. Uh, they already had one damaged Chinook. Yeah, they were already having a bad night. Did you ever find out? I mean, other you explained it in the book as he just wanted to get him some and, and get in on it. But did we ever find out a reason how he picked that and how he... Is there any reason behind it, or did he just do it? No, sir. He just did it. Yeah, he... Who knows? Who knows? I, I felt later after thinking about it that, you know, he felt that he was doing, you know, what he what needed to be done, and I, I don't know. Nobody knows. <laughs> he, he didn't say anything all the three-and-a-half-hour trip home, and... Once we landed and the door opened, he ran off. <laughs> well, yeah. Never and, to be seen again. <laughs> well, I mean, you would think that he would clear it through through uh, flight control that, that he's bringing. the One, he's bringing yeah. in fast movers. Two, he's bringing in ordnance to the ground, so he's going to be checking through fire control and air control, and he didn't do it through either one of them. No, sir. He was supposed to clear all fires through me, and I made that very clear to him before we even took off and he was, he attended the, you know, the big brief, mass brief, but you know, I said, Hey, you, you don't do anything without clearing it through me first. So, so we got a process. Right. So what are you using up there? Are you using like an, if SAS you using tech fire compute, what are you using up there to control all these fires? Well, mate, for the fixed wing, it was all on time. And I had, I had a matrix printed out with right. the, call signs or frequencies, what type of aircraft they were, what ordinance they were carrying, you know, where they were going to strike. So, you know, once, once it started, I mean, I talked to the B1s, that was my first call that and everything was going as planned. So as briefed, so I, you know, I gave them clearance and then everybody had a job, you know, to come in after, each one they'd cycle in and they're all separated, you know, by space in the air as they circled and held around or, you know, they, heck, those B1s, they might have been 20 miles away, right. you know. And when I tell them clear, because they're moving at Mach 2 probably. And, uh, yeah, it, it was a sight I'll never forget. You can see their blue flames and they came down low probably five, 600 feet to drop their ordinance. They had wow. specific ordinance for their, their pre-planned target. And then the rest of them came in and yeah, started dropping ordinance. So, you know, B-52 carries a hundred and, uh, 105 Mark 82, 500 pound bombs. And there were two flights of four wingtip to wingtip. Oh, <laughs> I was like, Oh man, that's going to hurt. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, yeah, we're here and we're angry. And Absolutely. Yeah. If they had any doubt about it, they yeah, don't sir. anymore. So when you mm -hmm. get done with this mission and you have your uh, 
ass whooping with monkey and you hit his head against the, the wall a couple times you get yeah. back and he runs off. There's a decision made to maybe not use you guys on the, if I, if I understood it right to not use you guys on the aircraft anymore. Cause there was too much, uh, I guess you would say crosstalk or whatever, but, but you had kind of grown to like the job and, and you helped get that job to continue going. Correct. Yes, sir. That's correct. It, it was mainly the, the monkey ordeal that the command had looked at and, you know, and well, it was the Delta commander, 160th, of course, Leon Hansen, the other FSO. And they're like, Hey, look, this is, you know, we, we didn't know. I mean, this was all new. Right. That we're like, Hey, let's try this. And yeah, it was, we were successful at doing it. And there, there were other LNOs or liaisons that would go up on that on the gunships. Yeah, you bet. But it was, yeah, it's a great team and we were very successful and we were efficient and we found targets and killed them. And so you move away from that after you've done that for a while, you move away and you get to get back to being on a hunter killer team and you get to go out. And the first time you go out, I think, there's, oh, yeah. I think there's four of you that go out together, four little birds go out together and your, your whole mm -hmm. mission is really just a mess with the enemy. You're finding targets of opportunity. You're just kind of laying waste to yeah. whatever comes. Now I was very surprised here along with your armaments of your mini guns and, and your rockets and all that kind of stuff. You and your pilot co-pilot Jamie really like to use your M fours and uh, M 67 grenades. And so the first yes, time sir. I heard that, you you got to switch back and forth. One would fly and use all the armaments in the helicopter. The other one would be firing out of uh, the helicopter with their M4, and then they would switch back over into command, and you went yeah. back and forth. What gave you that idea to do that? Because that little bird is powerful enough coming in. So what gave you that idea to, is it just so you could engage more targets at once? Is it because it would disrupt the enemy and not know what they were doing? What, what was the idea behind that? Yes, yeah, sir. We had, I mean, we had trained prior to this and it, it goes back to the tactics in Vietnam. I mean, those guys flying their loaches, their 086s, you know, those jungles and they, you know, there'd be a pilot and then a gunner and either the gunner would have a rifle or usually an M60 machine gun hanging out there. And yeah, I mean, they would, they drop grenades, they drop smoke, you know, and mark targets. And that, that's just what we did. Plus it was efficient, you know, while the guy that wasn't flying, if a target of opportunity you know, popped up, then he could suppress it or engage it with, you know, very, very good accuracy. So, yeah, it just, it made sense. We're killers and that's what we do. So, you know, the guy's flying, he's focused on that target. He's focused on, you know, what he needs to do. The other guy not flying, you know, he does what he needs to do to get you to that target. And then your M4 is up or, you know, you can reach in, grab a hand grenade and drop it on the bad guys. Which you did quite a few times. As a matter yes, of fact, sir. you did it so many times on one mission, you got called in about it and uh, had to explain why you were dropping grenades out of your, <laughs> out of your helicopter. Yeah. So yes, sir. Yeah, what? the old man, the old man didn't like my 
Not my response. He did not, and and uh, I'm I want to talk about him in a minute because you 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 guys seem like you had uh, quite a close relationship. I know that sounds weird, but it it seems like he trusted you a lot more than than you would think. Uh, maybe you deserved, or maybe that you needed. But he he almost treated you as an equal to him. I mean, he's the task force commander, and and he's treating you as an equal. But I want to go back to that first one. Is it true that you had probably 200 kills that night? Oh, yes, sir, at least. Holy at least. shit. Just our our team of AHs, and there was another team that went off to the west. And, I mean, that, that was our mission. That's what we did. So, yeah, it, it, was, it was a target-rich environment. <laughs> yeah. I would say so. You you destroyed like three fuel tankers, two hundred personnel, uh, armored vehicles, like five mm. armored vehicles, like nine soft skin vehicles. I mean, you were just decimating stuff out there. And so wow. I'm it wondering was a gun pilot's dream. Well, yeah, and I'm wondering <laughs> though, is when we look at this, this is kind of um this is kind of your first time uh, doing what you've trained to do your whole life, right? I mean, th th yes. this is the yes. deal. And so you're introduced into this, and you're introduced in a big way into this. Like, th if you want to cut your teeth, this is how you're going to do it. What I enjoyed oh, yeah, about sure. it was was that you always gave Jamie credit. You always said he was a better pilot than you. You said that he could do things oh, yeah. with that aircraft that you could not believe that he could do with it. I just wonder about that. You're the elite. You are the best of the best. How do you stay grounded and are able to give that kind of uh, niceness or respect to the guy, you guys are equal. I mean, you both done the same thing. How do you how do you check yourself into that? Because it's going to kind of go into this next thing that we're going to talk about. Yes, sir. And I always felt that I, I didn't belong there. I I truly did. And it. I mean, for me personally, I I consider myself. I walked among giants, and you know, I looked up to all those fellows, and they were by far the best of the best. And Jamie Weeks, and you know, God bless him. And I think about him every day. He was killed in action with Bubba Warrell in Iraq. But that that guy, he could just he could make that helicopter dance like I nobody I'd ever flown with. He was just God had given him a gift. Yeah, he could. I and I was honored to get to fly with Jamie in our first combat mission. So. I'd known him for many, many years. We'd flown a package together in the 101st. And you know, what? what is interesting, though, about that is, is that you, there's no ego in the helicopter. Now, did you ever run across that where there was ego yeah. in the helicopter? Or did you both kind of know, no matter what aircraft you were in, no matter who you were flying with, like, everyone knows what they're doing. I don't have to second guess this guy. Did you ever run across that ever? And I'm not just talking in the 160th. I'm talking whenever you flew from the beginning to the end. Did you ever come across that? No, sir. I, n I never did in the attack. I was always an attack guy. I flew Cobras, Apaches, and then right. Little Birds. But never, I mean, every man knows what he has to do. And, you know, you live together, you train together, you laugh together, you cry together. 
and you, you just know, like I knew what Jamie was going to do when he was thinking it. I didn't have to ask him or I knew what lead was going to do. Or if we were in lead, our, I knew what trail or dash two or wingman was going to do. You just, no, you, you never had a second guess it. And there was never, ever any egos in there ever. You're just there to do your job and do the best you can do. So on one of your missions when you're with him, uh, your uh, M4 gets a little fouled as you're trying to use it out your door. So you decided, since you're from, oh. <laughs> since you're from Texas, uh, you were going to play Wild Wild West oh. and uh, pull out your pistol and uh, start firing on targets. You and know, you actually, Jamie says that you hit two targets. That That's what he said. And to this day, I don't, and, and it goes back to training. I mean, it, it's, you know, not only are we attack helicopter pilots, but we're very proficient with our rifles, our pistols, and, you know, we don't ever want to be a, a liability if we ever find ourselves on the ground, which I did. <laughs> yes. And, you know, we, we want to be an asset. And it goes back to Black Hawk Down, the Battle of the Black Sea, Mogadishu in October 3-4-93, but as a firearms instructor for the unit and, you know, always push the guys and impress them. But I think it, it's, it just goes back to training. You know, my primary went down. So I went to my secondary, which was, you know, my 1911. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I just start, I feel the sights and start pressing the trigger at, you know, the, and they were, they were fairly close, you know, and I was like, man, they're gonna, they're gonna start engaging here pretty soon. But, yeah, my rifle sling on, on my rifle had hung up and I couldn't get it up. So I just dropped it and I was like, okay, this is all I got. So, yeah. And you said you were uh, very glad that you had moved from your hip to your chest with your uh, sidearm. Yeah. That, yes, that, uh, yeah, that, that was something. Yeah, you know, I thought about it a lot. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I, I thought about that quite a bit and I'd actually done it prior to 9-11 and training and kind of move holsters around. So, you know, I could get to it or the guy next to me or the guy behind me or beside me could also get to that weapon. It's just, that's how we think. And that's, you know, how we're brought up to think outside that box. But yeah, so I'd, I'd move mine to my kit, to my vest and had kind of rigged it with, I don't know, 550 cord and, you know, <laughs> whatever. And I finally got my old, yeah, I had a blade tech holster and being a lefty, you know, so they have to kind of special make those things. And I'd call them and say, Hey, could you make me a left-hand holster? <laughs> They're like, you bet. <laughs> so it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of one of a kind. It was a prototype, so to speak, but yeah, so I just grabbed my pistol and I started start putting putting rounds down to the enemy. Yeah, it was uh, it was pretty amazing that that happened. So I told you that I, you know, thought when I heard about you dropping grenades and stuff out of the helicopter. So you had dropped so many that the the general had called you in to talk to you. The old man called you in to talk to you. Now here's what I noticed throughout the whole book, and you can tell me if I'm wrong about it, but I feel like. There was something special about the way that you moved around. And what I mean is you could be one of the guys. You hung out with everyone. You made coffee in the morning for everyone. You talk about that in the book. 
but you could also talk to the command. Now, that's a very hard thing to do, whether that be a first responder, whether that be someone in the military. That's a difficult thing to do, be able to be one of the guys and still be able to talk to command. So how is it that you came about that? What approach did you take to that that people can learn from how to move around in both worlds? Yes, sir. That's a very valid question. And for me personally, you know, our, our commanders and our leadership, they have full faith and confidence in us as warriors, as soldiers, as officers, operators. And, you know, if I felt it was critical and our command always had an open door, so to speak, that, you know, hey, if you got something, you know, please, please, please come talk to us about it. But in the in that position that I was in for that time, you know, I was I had very close relationship with all the command from, you know, General Daly down to your know, ops officers to all those folks, because it was critical, you know, that I communicate with them or talk with them, ask them questions. So, yeah, and I'm just I mean, people always said it could be a strength or it could be a weakness, my candor, but I would, you know, and, and I'd always go to the old man, as we call him, to our leadership. And, hey, sir, this I think this is broken, but here's how you can fix it. Here's how we can fix this. So that's always, that's always been with me in my, in my career and, you know, out of respect for them that, you know what, if something's wrong, you need to tell someone, but always have a solution to that problem. Don't go in there and say, hey, this is screwed up, you know, have a solution to fix it. And they, they respect that in all of us. So it, and it goes, it goes down to our sergeants, to our enlisted NCOs, all those folks, you know, they were, they were all highly respected. And so when, when you can do that and you can go back and forth, uh, do you find that it's a lot easier to get done what you need to get done? Yeah. Oh, yes, sir. Absolutely. Yeah. And, it, and being, you know, I was that guy. <laughs> and I talk about it in the book because I was, I was a little disappointed. And, you know, one of my close buddies, Jim Hosey, I told him, you know, what the plan was for me. And he just laughed and laughed and, he goes, well, he says, I'm telling you, you're going to find yourself in the middle of it. And I said, well, okay, you know, I'm going to go with it. But I, I sure do want to get in the AH and, you know, go deal some hate on these bad guys. So, but when you, when I would come back, you know, they'd always be like, okay, what's, you know, what's going on? What's, what's happening? Because, he, you know, you're that direct link and then, you know, you bring that information. To, yeah, I always try to keep guys up to date and let them know what was latest and greatest. Yeah, again, it's just managed chaos. <laughs> so, as much as you could talk to a command, uh, you had a little trouble on uh, Thanksgiving with a couple of visitors that came out to see you guys on one of your tours. Uh, oh, yeah, no. So you had a little trouble oh, yeah, with sure. uh, General Shinsheki. Now, uh, I was in when this happened, um, and I remember when we went over from the patrol cap to the beret, and we changed over, oh, and you yeah. had some real heartburn with him about going to that beret. What was your thoughts on, 
I'm guessing that your thoughts on command at that point were they have no idea what they're doing. Yes, sir. We, we all pretty much felt that way that, you know, and I understand that the leadership and all the services, you know, their one of their priorities is morale and, you know, making folks feel the way they need to feel. But that me personally, that, that was not how you fix the problem. And, the Black Beret belongs to the Ranger Regiment. Always has, always will be. And, you know, to give every soldier in the United States Army a Black Beret to make them feel better was just not the right answer for me, personally. And, you know, that that's, a Beret is something that is earned. And, you know, these men that go into Special Forces or to the Ranger Regiment, or that are airborne or to the 160th, man, there's a lot of, of blood and sweat that goes into earning that beret. And it was one of my most proudest moments earning my maroon beret. So for the 160th, but yeah, it, it just, it just rubbed me the wrong way, man. Yeah. So they come visit and you don't go into a lot of detail about what they did, but I guess they get up on stage and they're going to give like a morale speech about what's going on over there. And they call like the female soldiers, soldierettes and, um, Oh goodness gracious. Yes. They were kind of doing oh, we a, just... like a comedy act almost. Yeah. And, it, and you know, we were kind of whispering between us. I mean, here you have the most elite force on the planet. Yeah, Delta, the Rangers, and the Night Stalkers. And Chief Staff of the Army comes in with the Sergeant Major of the Army giving us this hua hua speech at Thanksgiving. You know, we're all looking at each other like, what in the world? <laughs> and, it, and they talk about standards. And, you know, one of the first things I thought of was, well, we set the standards. We wrote the standards for, you know, not only do we do our mission, but, you know, we help the big army or the Marines or the Navy or who else, whoever that, you know, with tried, true and tested tactics and procedures that, you know, we know that work. So, Hey, okay, you guys, this works. And we all started looking at each other when they, you know, he starts talking to us about standards. It's like, what in the, what in the world is going on? Yeah, and then the Sergeant Major of the Army, we had, I think there were three females, and they were intel, I mean, professional soldiers, and refers to them as soldierettes. And I mean, it, you just could have heard a pin drop in there at that time. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah, they just didn't, they didn't know who their audience was, I guess. And so did you did you run across that a lot? Because you talk about it a couple times in the book where you run across uh, different different commands. Uh, I think the first time the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders came there and you decided to take a quad and a and an RTO over there to meet up with your buddy that was in charge of them, and you got kind of dirty looks from the command, and then they actually told your friend, and he told him he was a close friend of yours, that uh, you guys don't exist and they're not taking anyone over to meet you and they're not wasting the time on it. Did you see that a lot? Even being in as elite a unit as you were in, did you see that with command a lot where they kind of, I guess you would say, or big army command kind of looked down their nose at you? 
Yes, sir. And that's, uh, you know, it, it was, yeah, they were regular army officers and senior enlisted, but yes, I always felt that, and you can read, I mean, it, it's out there and it has been for years and years and years that, yeah, they, they just kind of, they kind of look down at you and, you know, it was unfortunate that day that, cause I, Dan Devins was, you know, the fellow that I met with the Dallas Cowboys organization and, you know, and he got excited and I was excited, but he was going to, you know, they were going to come up there and see us and they said, no, those, you know, those guys don't exist and those aren't black helicopters. <laughs> and Dan, I've known him for years and, you know, and he knows what we, who we are, what we right. do. And, yeah, it was, it was unfortunate. So, so did you see that a lot going through and, and why do you think that is? Because I mean, with you guys being elite, is it, they hate you cause they ain't you. What, what is the idea behind that? Because you would think that it wouldn't be, I don't want to use the word reverence. They don't have reverence to you, but you would think that they know, like these guys know what they're doing. I mean, they're at it every single day. Uh, is there a reason why they, they look down? Is it because you guys are pipe hitters constantly or what, what is it? I, you know, I, I don't know. And it's, I mean, me personally, I had many, 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 many friends out in big army, regular mm -hmm. army. And, you know, they all, I mean, they respected us and they respected, you know, what we did and what we do. And I, I never had much, interaction with anyone outside of the special operations community and i mean you know there's all kind of books out there written and how regular army kind of looked down at special operations for whatever reason i i don't know but you know we're i think it has it has changed drastically since 9-11 because we are we're just we're a big team i mean you know, we're all a team and we're all striving for the same end state of each and every one of those commanders out there. Would you like to talk about being shot down? Because I definitely want to talk to you about it. Oh, oh sure, man. Yeah, Eight seconds. that was uh, Eight you know, seconds. Mr. Murphy. And uh, you get shot down and you not only get shot down, but in pure gravy fashion throughout this entire book. You get pissed off enough to attack the guys that attack you and kill the people that shot your bird down. So let's 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 start out with the mission. Run us through the mission uh, until you get shot down, and then we'll kind of go from there. Yeah, sure. It was March of '04, and I'd come back on that tour, and it was the 18th of March. We we're operating quite a bit in Fallujah and Ramadi, and it was. I mean, man, it was the wild, wild west. It was, we had the incursion of jihadists and they were flooding into the country to fight Americans. So Al-Qaeda, terrorists, and we had, we had kind of called that area the Devil's Triangle. You go from Fallujah over to Ramadi and then down to Amaria in the vicinity of where I was shot down. So in that triangle, there have been several helicopters shot down in just a couple of months. And I don't believe there have been any survivors. And a couple of them have been Chinooks. 
full of troops. Right. So I think the number you gave we was had, seven. We, yes, sir. Yeah. But we were hitting, oh, goodness. Let's see, that time of year, we had a little bit, we could hit more targets because we had more darkness. It was dark longer than in the summer where, you know, the nights are shorter. But we had hit, I don't know, four, five, six, seven targets a night. And we had gained intel off of a target in Fallujah that night that another high-ranking Al-Qaeda leader was going to meet in, in Fallujah at like 10 o'clock that next morning. So we came off mission set that night, and the guy, the ground force said, hey, we're just, you guys, you know, just hang out here, and we're going to go hit the target because, you know, we're all thinking, oh, Lord, not a daytime mission in Fallujah in, you know, 2004. So we just, we hung out at our little holding area there. We cranked up, got up on the radios, and those sergeant majors said, hey, you know, if something happens, we'll just give you a call, and we can be there in two minutes. <clears throat> so they hit that target, got that guy, and then from that fellow that they had a chat with, they, there was another target that was down in that close to Amaria. So sergeant major came back, troop commander, and said, hey, we're just going to drive down there. We're going to kill him or capture him. And, you know, you guys go back to BIOP, Baghdad International Airport, where we're staging out of, and, you know, go get some rest because we've been nonstop for days now. So we, we fly back, and then it's around uh, 12.30 or so in the afternoon, and they had, the ground force had been in a tick, so they called troops in contact. So we ran out to the AHs to, you know, just to go help them. And I mean, that's, that's who we are. That's what we do. And so we jumped in the chariot to death, hauled ass out there. It's probably 10, 12 minute flight, got on station. They had been in some gunfights there. And again, it was, it was just a bad, bad place. I mean, it, everybody was a bad guy. So troop commander had called and said, hey, we're getting ready to exfil. You know, we're done here. So I, everybody was relieved, to say the least. Again, it was about 1, 15, 13, 15 hours local time, and it was our first day mission since October 3rd, 93, so in Mogadishu. That's, that's not a no, good thing. No, yeah. it is. No, sir. And uh, so I came, I came back around, and they had three gun trucks up armored Humvees and then two Panders, which are big six-wheel armored vehicles. And I'd, I'd just, I'd always kind of swoop down over them, a few feet above them, and, you know, do the old wave <laughs> and fish shake or flip them off or whatever the case. And, but, yeah, we, it was just a huge sigh of relief that we were leaving that place and we had stirred up the hornet's nest so i had i just you know flown right over top of them i was climbing out uh climbing right hand turn to come back around so we could cover them as they started to drive out and and i just 
I was about 165 feet. I was in a kind of southwesterly direction in which I was headed. And then just this giant explosion. And this fireball went, I mean, right by my head, my shoulder. And it got real quiet. <laughs> I was like, oh, Lord. Of course, any pilot, you know, the first thing out of their mouth is, oh, shit. I'm telling you. And, and at that point, I was like, okay, I've got to get, you know, the helicopter set up for an auto rotation. So I'm an IPN instructor pilot and done hundreds, hundreds of auto rotations. And, and the little birds, we do them all the way to the ground. You know, the rest, nobody else does them to the ground but us. And that's just how we train. And we always, you know, we're out, we train for an engine failure. So if your engine quits, you're in an auto rotation that keeps the main rotor spinning, the tail rotor spinning. It's just a power off landing is the best I can explain it. But the A86 or the MD530 helicopter, it falls like a grease crowbar. It, fall, it, it auto rotates at about 26, 2700 feet per minute. Cool. So you're screaming out of the sky. Well, when you enter an auto, you got, you know, you got to think about your airspeed. I was at about 65, 70 knots. So my airspeed was good, but I had a direct, I'm, I'll never forget. I had a direct tailwind. It was about 20 knots. Plus, I was heavy. I was full of ammo, gas, rockets, minigun. And uh, so I entered my auto. And, and the instant that that happened, the best way I can describe it is that in anybody that's been in a, a very stressful situation or in a gunfight or an emergency situation, it was, it was like a, a movie you know, it's frame by frame by frame by frame. It just, my world slowed down and my training took over. And, you know, I, I remember checking my airspeed, my altitude, my rotor. I was like, oh man, my rotor's getting a little low or it was getting a little high. So I increased collective, keep that rotor down. Because <clears throat> if it, you know, if it goes to 106 RPM and it keeps going, well, the main rotor can spin off the helicopter or cause a damage. And again, I didn't see the shot. It, he shot me in the back like the low life that he was. And it was an SA-16 shoulder-fired surface-to-air missile. It's a heat seeker. And when that they can set it to proximity, it's got a proxy use. So when it gets so far from that heat source, it'll explode, and that sends all that shrapnel. Well, it, it worked as advertised. <laughs> it hit the engine. And uh, the guys told me, later that the the engine cowling doors had blown them open and two of the ground guys had seen the shot from a two-story building so they started to suppress immediately where the shot came from but they the guys that saw us they said it looked like i was trying to fuck those engine cowlings were flapping back and forth you know and i was on fire all the way down there's actually a photo that one of the rangers snapped and you can you can see the fire coming it's just a little black dot it's not a real good picture but it's the only picture that we have and i thought it was pretty cool to you know see that but i i i just focused on the task at hand and 
you know, I entered my auto, my trim was good, my airspeed was good, and as a helicopter pilot, you know, use things around you in the environment to judge your distance above the ground, but we have a radar altimeter in that helicopter, so there were no trees, there were no buildings, it was just dirt out there, so I was focusing on my radar altimeter because there's things that I have to do as an aviator, you know, at 75 feet, I have to start a D-cell to bleed that airspeed off. So I saw 75 feet in my scan, I was watching the rotor trim, airspeed, just, and, you know, where we were going to the ground. And so I started my D-cell, I thought to myself, you know, hey, I, I, I want to minimize my ground run when I touch down, because I didn't know the conditions of the surface, was it rocky, was it hilly, was it whatever. And I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to slide very far. So I, I just did a really progressive big decel to bleed that airspeed off. And then about 25 feet, you want to level the aircraft and then pull initial with the collective. That helps slow you down and helps cushion that landing. And then at 10 feet, you want to pull the rest of the collective that you have left to cushion your landing. That's the best way I can explain it. And, and I did that and we touched down and of course the aircraft just fills with dirt and dust. And, and my guy, the other AH said he, he said it was the prettiest auto rotation he had ever seen. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like Neil Armstrong landing the, the lunar module. You know, you got one chance to do this and yep. you got to do it right. So, so it, yeah, we got on the ground and uh, I talked to my co-pilot later and we were in our heads, we were kind of high-fiving each other. We we're like, oh yeah, you know, we, I got this thing, we're on the ground, everything's good, we're, you know, we're sliding. And then old Mr. Murphy raised his old ugly head and we went down a bit of a slope, slid about 35 meters in the, into some soft dirt and the skids stuck in the dirt and that rolled, that flipped us end over end. Well, being an old cowboy and, you know, breaking broncs and riding horses and stuff, I, I, I'll never forget that, you know, that, that forward motion, that helicopter was just going up, up, up like a horse was bucking. And I can remember, you know, just kind of, really pushing back on the pedals, getting my feet deep in the stirrups. To, oh no, you know? And, uh, yeah, I, I, I recall the, the rotor blades hitting the dirt. And again, I was thinking, man, I just, I got to keep it level because if you, if you're one side or the other, those rotor blades could come through the cockpit. You know, if you, if you're not level when, when that thing starts rolling over and, you know, thank the good Lord. He was watching over us. And yeah, we were level and came to, uh, of course we came to, we were inverted. And the first thing I remember is hearing popcorn. I was like, what in the world is that? You know, well, the helicopters engulfed in fire and that was the ammo cooking off <laughs> in, the, in the minigun cans behind us. And I was like, oh man, that's the ammo cooking off, you know? So, you know, you go through those checks, you check, okay, my toes move, my feet move, my legs move, 
okay, my arms kind of are moving. I dislocated my shoulders and uh, in the crash sequence, we'd roll end over end like three times, came to rest inverted. And uh, dust was kind of clearing. And I, I reached over to my co-pilot and put my hand on his shoulder. And I said, hey, you okay? He's looking straight ahead. And he kind of turned his head and he had blood all over his face. And I was just like, oh, Lord, man, is he hit? And then then I thought about the, the little birds somewhat infamous in a crash, in a roll sequence, their shoulder harnesses don't lock. So the pilot, his mouth hits the cyclic. <laughs> we call it the old cyclic kiss. And I know guys that have been, you know, they're missing all their teeth. The shoulder harness didn't lock, but they were able to walk away from it. But so I looked at him and I said, hey, you okay? And he said, he just kind of nodded his head and I said, all right, get your rifle and meet me out. I pointed to the side. You don't want to get in front of a, an attack helicopter because that's where weapons were pointed, the guns right. and the rockets. And so you always go to three or nine o'clock. But I pointed and I said, meet me over here. And he kind of nodded and he went back to looking dead ahead and I grabbed my rifle. I pulled my my harness buckle and boom, I kinda I was already kinda on the ground where my side was on the ground. So I crawled out and of course my first thought was, oh my gosh, man, little black helicopter shot down, black hawk down, you know, the whole thing ran through my head. So my first priority was security of that you know, of my helicopter and my co-pilot. Of course, I could hear the other A-8 shooting. I could hear, you know, the ground guys, they were shooting, you know, the 50 cals or they had dual 240G machine guns on one of the trucks. They were engaged in targets of opportunity, suppressing. And then one of the guys had got in one of the gun trucks to come, you know, check on us. So I, I tried to get up and my right leg wasn't working. And uh, so I, I'd, I'd stand up and then I'd fall down. I'd stand up, I'd try to take a step, I'd fall down. And the other AH, they they were kind of watching this because they kept checking on us. They'd go engage the target, come back, check on us. And, and they told me later that they're like, dude, we're, we were getting ready to land because the helicopter's on fire. We didn't see any movement. And then we see old Gravy. <laughs> he's up, and then he's down. They said it looked like a clown. He's up, and he's down. He's up, and he's down. They kind of swooped over, and, you know, we gave the international symbol of the middle finger and let, you know, let them know we were okay. And then they went back, and they were about to run out of gas, so they had to leave. So <clears throat> I looked back and I was like, man, I need to get my, I need to get my rucksack. We both carried a little one day rucks right behind us in the bulkhead. And it's got, you know, our night vision goggles. It's got ammo. It's got grenades, water. And uh, so I kind of hobbled back and I was, I looked and, I, and the whole cargo area was just engulfed in flame. And I was like, man, I'm not sticking my hand in there to get that stupid rucksack out. 
So then I'm looking for the co-pilot. I don't see him. So I go back to the front, crawl in there, and I tell him, I said, hey, you've got to get out right now, okay? And he just, he kind of nodded his head. And later I talked to him. I said, man, what, what in the world were you doing? He goes, I was listening to the radio. They were talking about us. <laughs> hey, they, you know, <laughs> hey, you guys have been shot down, and you know we can, we're in a gunfight, and we don't know the status. And I was like, okay. So I crawl back out because again I'm worried about. I'm thinking in my head that okay, these dudes are going to start, you know, rushing this helicopter. And I mean, it's just open desert, dirt, nothing around us. So I, I take another look 360 degrees around, make sure I got good security. And and I look back and I say, where is the co-pilot? <laughs> so I kind of crawl back over there. I crawl in the helicopter and I, I didn't say anything to him. I just reached up, grabbed the latch. You're familiar with the, you know, the latch harnesses. And I pulled it and he just, he went, don't, because he was upside down, he hit. And then he, he kind of looked at me. <laughs> I just grabbed him. And when I went in there that last time, the fire was just, it was, he was in a left seat and it was just rolling around his arm. I mean, right there at him. So I, I just grabbed him. I just jerked, <laughs> I just jerked him out on top of me. And we were just sitting there face to face. And I said, come on, we got to go. <laughs> he shook his head again. And, uh, so we got out and we got to the three o'clock position there about 50 meters away. And I thought about the, we had 17 pound rockets on board. And I was like, man, what are those things going to do? You know, when they catch on fire, but they, they just burned up. They never exploded or anything like that. The ammo cooked off for quite some time. Well, I set up the co-pilot. He was looking to the north in the prone and I was on a knee looking to the east because that's where the gunfight was. That's where the shot came from. I said, hey, we're kind of, we're kind of jacked up right now. So if you see something, just, you know, sing out and we'll put two sets of eyes on it. We'll put two guns on it. He had his rifle. And so I, and I looked at him, I'd taken his helmet off and, and, you know, checked him out real well. So I was like, okay, let me see your grinners, you know, so <laughs> let me see your teeth. And he, I, he showed me his teeth and they were okay. And I was like, man, where's this blood coming from, you know? So I said, hey, open your mouth and stick out your tongue while he's bitten through his tongue. Oh. And the, about half of it, <laughs> that crazy, that's where the blood came from. And I was like, oh, Lord. I said, okay. So I'm sitting there and it wasn't, I don't know what time passed by, but I heard a truck. So I tell him, I'm like, hey, I got a vehicle coming up. So I heard it, heard it stop. And then I see this, I see this head. I said, I got contact my, you know, on me. And so we kind of scooted together and put two guns up. And uh, so I saw a ball cap and I see his face and then I see his beard and I'm like, I know that guy. I said, okay, we're good. There's old Chaz, and he come to fetch us, and he's he's running. I mean, just 
full tilt, and he kind of stops and looks at us, and then he takes off, and he gets up there to us, and of course, he hugs us, and he goes, man, he says, Greg, we thought you guys were dead. I said, well, we ain't dead. And he goes, well, what do you want to do? I said, I want to go find that son of a bitch and kill him. <laughs> he goes, well, get in the truck. And I said, roger that. So we kind of clambered up in the truck. We met up with the other vehicles. And, yeah, and, and then we spent the next about six hours in a gunfight. So, yes, sir. Yeah, we attacked the ville and got into the ville and tried to, you know, find find somebody that, knew about what had happened. I had a theory that it was a, it was a person that had SA-16s because that was a very highly advanced technological weapon system. And nobody, you know, no one had a clue that they were even in country. But every one of those weapon systems leaves a signature trail. So when it's fired, it'll corkscrew. And it'll have dark smoke or light smoke or gray smoke. And everyone has a very signature corkscrew as it goes, you know, as it launches and starts its flight. And a couple of guys says, dude, that, that was an SA-16. And I said, okay. So I wanted to get to that building and check the roof to see if there were any, you know, any, a dunnage or anything left up there. And there, there was nothing. So we, you know, I wanted to confirm or deny. And so yeah, they, we uh, got gathered up. We got stuck in the mud there during the middle of a gunfight. And the panther came around <laughs> and dude jumps out and hooks on a strap, pulls us out. And yeah, we're covering them. And yeah, it was, it was just another day at the office. Well, I was yeah, about to say, was that your worst day in the army ever? <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah, sir. Yeah, I'd have to say so. Yeah. So after being shot down, we you you come back to the United States. Uh, you start having some surgeries. Mm-hmm. But something that we haven't talked about that I kind of want to get into now, if it's okay with you, is um, you had started not being able to sleep well. Um, you had uh, started having, like, bad dreams. Uh, you were having these surgeries, mm-hmm. all these kind of things. Um, do you see it not only starting to affect you, but it's starting to affect your family. Now you're getting surgery. Now you're, uh, getting pain medicine to you. You can't sleep at night. You're, you're starting to get haunted by stuff that you've seen. Um, kind of go through you coming back to the United States. We talked about it in the beginning where you're not just coming back once you're coming back 15 times. You're coming back 20 times. Uh, at a certain point, does your family, I guess not, not care as much that you're back because they have their own thing. You write about that where you think you're kind of just in the way. Yes, yes, yes. And I, I think every soldier goes through that, that the, our families become independent, very independent because dad's gone, you know, especially in our, our community. I mean, crap i i figured up one time we're i averaged like 290 days a year on the road ty or training or that's before 9 11 then you know you throw in 10 11 12 14 15 combat tours but they they do they have to to you know they have to 
structure their lives without dad there, without that spouse there. And for me, it was, you know, one, I was, I was suffering from PTS and diagnosed with survivor's guilt a, a year, yeah, it was about a year later that, um, but you go through different phases and, you know, for me, it was this, you know, I was in pain constantly. I wasn't sleeping and I had this, I had a severe traumatic brain injury. I hit the side of the door frame in the crash sequence and it, I mean, I hit it so hard it cracked my helmet and I had this terrible, terrible headache for over, it was about nine months. And oh, just a man. constant headache I for mean, nine months, 24 seven, man, nothing, nothing would subdue my head from hurting. And, you know, the, of course they had sent me all over the place and had brain scans and, you know, they explained, Hey, you got a brain bruise and a pretty severe one. And, you know, your brain swells and the brain sits in fluid inside your skull and, you know, if you look at the physics of all that. So, you know, I battled that plus all my injuries at the time. But, I mean, for Greg Coker, I just, I wanted to get fixed and I wanted to get back in the fight because, one, there's there's not many of us that do what we do. I think at the time, maybe 24, 25 of us. And you were two were, pilots you know, down. Yes, sir. Now we're two pilots down. So now somebody's going to have to take my place. Yeah, I I don't I want to stop you for just a second and and it's not because I I really want to get into this. So the the whole thing about this is you talked about your helmet and that you cracked it, right? You got your buddies mm-hmm. to get rid of that helmet uh because that was going to be an yeah. auto yes, sir. That was going to be an automatic 2 year where you couldn't fly. So here's my question yes. to you. You have two daughters at home. You have a wife at home. You have all these things that yes. you love back there. And you're willing to risk it all, especially knowing how hard you hit your head. You're willing to risk it all to fly more missions. I got to know where you're coming from. That was the biggest part of the book where I'm like, what is he doing? Like, you, I, I, get, I get it to a certain point. I do. I understand it. But when you get to you just escaped death, very luckily escaped yes, death. Uh, you yeah, have God's will. Absolutely. You have a headache that doesn't go away for nine months. And the only thing that you can think about, cause you talk about it, you prayed to go back over there. Yes. Do you ever think my number is going to come up on one of these things? And all these people that are waiting for me here, I, I just, I, I got to understand it. Yeah. that That's, and I, I ask that question every day. Was it the right decision at that time no no it wasn't but i will say this our our doctors in in the unit and across that community you know they they love us and they do everything they can to help us but if i tell the doc hey i'm good to go then they take that they're like okay he says he's good to go if Greg says, hey, doc, I'm not good, I, I need some time off, then, okay, we, yep, we'll let the command know, and yes, you need some time off, but we're all very driven men, 
We're very driven and we love one another. And, you know, again, it goes back to, I know it sounds crazy, but I did not want to miss anything. And my, you know, my purpose that God had put me here on this earth for was to be out there doing my job and protecting my brothers on the ground. So that's, that's what drove me then. And, you know, and looking back, was it, was it the right decision? No, it, it wasn't the right decision, but, and also, you know, I know that there's only so many of us and I don't want to let my brothers down and it ain't about me. It's about our team, our tribe. So, you know, I, I just, man, I did not want to fail and I didn't want to let those guys down the ground guys or the guys that I flew with. Right. Yeah. That's a good question. So do you see that there is a, because you go into it a little bit in the book, did you see there was a strain starting to happen with your daughters, with your wife? And when you see that, when I read the book, it, it, it seems like you almost, you almost kind of went into more of a shell. Yes, I sure did. And they, yeah, because I was, I was this extremely angry, hurting man in pain constantly and not focused on my family. I was committed to my duty and my job. And I just, you know, I, I was at a point where I didn't separate that, which I wish I could have and would have because that, that went on for years, literally. And then, you know, of course I didn't sleep. And the reason we don't sleep is because the demons come at night or when we sleep. So, okay. And then there's alcohol. Hey, I can fix this. I'll just drink until I pass out. And guess what? Here's it's time to go on another tour. So, you know, you go and do your job and there's no alcohol and everything's good because you're with your buddies. You're doing what you love. And man, I, I thought about those, my family, you know, all the time, but I was, I had a job to do and our country was at war and I'm dedicated and, you know, and I, and I told guys this for years and years, and I still do that, you know, when God's knitting us in our mother's womb, our path's already predestined. He, God, he's got this. Yeah. We may bump the left and right limits, but you know, your, your path is you're destined to do what he wants you to do for his, his goodness. So I, and I thought about that quite a bit, you know, I, I talked to the chaplains about it. I talked to the docs about it. I talked to, you know, the, the guys that were in my circle, but I did not talk to the right people about that. So I held that in. I pushed it down. I pushed it down for many years and man, it just, it'll eat you up. You can't do that. You got to go talk to the right folks and, you know, talk to your family, talk to your spouse talk to your kids. And I talk about it in the book that, you know, the focus was on started to, you know, come out on the vet, but it needs to be on that family. Also, they suffer from PTS. 
you know, look at all the nights they go through. I mean, many, many times we couldn't, we had no communication with our family. It was just for operational security. You know, they didn't know where we were, they didn't know what we were doing. You know, if you got hurt, yeah, they'd get a phone call. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's tough. But on the other side, we have very strong family support groups throughout the military now. And, you know, that's what, that's, those ladies keep, you know, they keep everybody going and they, they, they're a tribe, you know, they take care of the kids or, our docs, our medics, you know, they come to the house when babies are sick or mama's sick or, you know, whatever the case, it, it's, it's a tribe, man. It, it takes a tribe to get through all that. It sure does. And so when all this is going on and, and you're going back and forth and, and you're praying to go back over there and then you go back over there and you're fine, but you're really not because it's debilitating you more and more and more every time you do it. Not only physically. Um, I, I think I read in there that when you were 43, you were benching like 415, running sub-seven minute miles. Oh, yeah. And I was truly embarrassed about myself. No, no. Greg, I'm going to tell you for a second, I hated myself. And I was like, uh, wow, you are one lazy piece of shit. Uh, so... No, you're not. So, so I, you know, I, I, I see this and, and I read about you going back over there and coming back and, and it's just more and more and more. The dreams are starting to haunt you more. And, and I guess you finally get told, uh, it's time to go, man. Yes. And so, so when they tell you it's, when they tell you it's time to go after, because you just told me. Your job, it doesn't matter about you. Your job is protecting the man to the right and to the left. Your country's at war. You've given every bit of your soul, your body, your blood, everything to this country. Mm-hmm. And then it's as simple as someone coming up and saying, Greg, it's time to go. Goodbye. Yeah, Yes, sir. And at that point, I, I had come to the realization that I am no longer an I'm becoming a I am a liability and always, always thought worst case, you know, okay, let's just say we get shot down again or something happens. We have to land or, you know, can I do what I need to do? No, there at the end, you know, 2007 or so in there that, you know, I, and even the guys told me that I fly, I flew with that, Hey man, you know, we're worried about you. And I said, yeah, you're right. And then, I mean, it's all God's plan that, you know, the boss came up to me one day and said, Hey, Gregory, <laughs> when he calls me Gregory, I'm like, uh Oh, now I'm in trouble. But he said, yeah, it's, it's time to go home. I said, yes, sir. He said, you've been all you can be, man. I said, okay. Roger that. So are you, I guess I'm wondering like, because I'm not there yet. I'm pretty close. I'm about six years from retirement, maybe some more. Uh, mm-hmm. What are you feeling though? Like you have to, with it, because it, it can't be both ways, Greg. You just told me like everything about your world was that. And then they come up and they tell you that world is no more. We are moving on. So what, what are you feeling? 
How do you work through that? Because we talked about it in the very beginning when we talked about Leon and we talk about these guys that have no hope. Now you said in the book, you had no, no inkling of an idea ever to do something like that. It's too messy. It's too, but you're in the exact same spot. So how do you, or what do you tell these people that go, I just gave all this and this is the end. This is it. Yeah. It's scary to say the least. And man, it, it was, I talked to God a bunch. I, I'm a very faithful Christian man, and I've I've cursed God. I've been angry at Him, but it, it's you have to look inward. Number one, and I'm a very positive person, and I'm like, okay, I just completed one part of my life. Now it's time to go on to the next, and it's. I have to take care of my family. I have to get, I have to reintegrate into society, which I still haven't done today. I, I don't, I don't know if I ever, if any of us ever will. I mean, we try, but I'm like, okay, so I'll get a plan together, and and I did have, you know, moved to Texas and bought a place and build a house and and you know go to work and do my part. So. It, it was a lot of personal struggle. Yeah, I, I think it even got worse after I retired. And because I missed, oh, man, you missed that camaraderie. You miss your brothers, your friends. And, man, we're all adrenaline junkies. <laughs> I guess that's the best way I can put it is that, you know, it was just, it was fulfilling for me as a man, as a hunter, as a warrior, and to you know to do that job it it absolutely was so when when you're talking about retirement you're you're talking about that it's that camaraderie and that you know you're you miss being with those guys and it shows in the jobs that you took afterwards they were all security jobs they were all once again and as funny as it sounds they were away from your house again yes at one point you traveled away to arizona for a whole year and so I guess, yes, sir, they, I guess once again, we go back to that question, you know, in your brain, you said, Hey, I got to step away from that. I got to be with the family. I got to do this. And then you go into retirement and you go right back out into exactly what you just left in a different way, but right back into what you just left. I believe that fear and you know, I, my fear was, you know, one, I've got to make a living and I've, I've got to take care of my family. Absolutely. And so, you know, I worked in the firearms industry for many, many years. And yeah, Mike Dillon had called in 2000, early, I think it was 2010. Well, very, you know, Dillon Arrows is a very small company and they build and manufacture the M134 minigun. Mm-hmm. And I, I've known the Dillons for many, many years. And I just, I love them all dearly. And but three of their employees had been activated. So they had to go overseas. And he said, he asked me, he said, Hey, could you come out here and help us for a few weeks? <laughs> it wound up being a year that I stayed out there. But yeah, it was, you know, that looking back, I, it probably wasn't the right decision again. And, but it was through fear that, 
you know, I've got to make a living. I've got to make money. I had girls, teenage and getting ready Absolutely. to go to college. And so I, you know, I just, I went to where the money was good. And I worked as a firearms and tactics instructor for Viking tactics for some time for Kyle mm-hmm. did that, that, that was, yeah, that, that was my favorite. <laughs> Cause yeah, I'm... you know, you're, 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 of course you're, you know, you're with Kyle all the time and he and Melinda and, oh my gosh, and I just, I owe so much to those two, but I was doing what I love to do. And again, though, you know, I was going on the road doing what I do. So and and I but a lot I, of it's fear. I think it, it's fear. Well, I think it's almost even like a fear, like a shark. If a shark stops moving, they say they die. I, I think it's stop swimming. Yeah, yeah. I, I I think it's. I I almost think it's that. But the reason I bring this up, and and I hate to do it, but I I think it's like the valid, the most valid point about the whole story and about the whole book, because it leads ultimately to your redemption. You end up getting a divorce. You end up kind of losing contact mm-hmm. with your girls, uh, but it all leads yeah. back to something good. What, to me, because it doesn't really talk about it in the book, if you don't mind, what what was kind of the, the straw that broke the camel's back, that, that kind of put all this last part into motion before the redemption comes? For Greg Coker, it was my, you know, my... I, I was just an angry man and I wasn't happy. And again, there's, you know, I was scared. There's a lot of fear. Of course there were, it was alcohol and you know, that, that is to subdue those demons and put those to rest. You know, doggone it. It just, yeah, it, it was a train wreck. <laughs> it was a train wreck. Right. But after that, that I got, I got my faith got back on track, and I never lost faith. I never lost my trust in God. And man, I just I prayed a lot and talked to him a lot, and of course reached out to my buddies and and you know my brothers here in the metro. I mean, we have. There's just a bunch of guys in, in my, the place that I used to have there in Hazlitt, man, there were always, I don't know, five, four, 10 vets come out and I had a range out there. Right. Of course we'd shoot and, you know, we talk, but it's, it's medicine. It's absolute medicine when you can get around the guys that, that know they've been there, they've done that, they smelled it, they tasted it. And, you know, for me, that was, that was medicine. That's what helped Greg Coker get through those difficult times. And, and I thought it was interesting. Uh, and I thought it was great. Uh, I have three daughters of my own that your daughter was who kind of brought you back into your faith. Yes. Yes. Yeah. The youngest. Yeah. You know, with all of this, what is the biggest lesson that you take away from it? Oh, I have, I have many. I think the biggest one is look inward. And if you, if you need help, seek help. Okay. 
if you're a veteran, if you're a first responder, and the worst thing you can do is subdue these feelings, it, it wound up a train wreck. And those that are around you that love you, reach out to them and talk to them. Go seek professional help. I've seen, I've been seeing a therapist for, golly, 12, 13 years. All my buddies, I mean, I've worked with a couple guys right now. You know, hey, let's let's get you some professional help. Let's, you know, you got to quit drinking. You got to get off the scripts and been there, done all that. And it just, it adds to your defeat, your defeat. And of course, you know, keep your faith. Uh, God loves you. And he, he just, he won't let you down, man. And you just, you just can't lose that faith. You can't, absolutely. But the biggest thing is to go talk to someone, talk to someone and you know, if you're on the upside, you know, call a buddy or go see a buddy. Tell them you love them. You may save his life that day, that day. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the organizations you work with as we're kind of wrapping this up and uh, what they do for veterans, first responders, people that are going through what you were just mentioning. Can we talk about some of the organizations that you work with um, and what they do for first responders, military? Oh, yeah, um, because I think that a lot of people, I think if they just knew some of the stuff that you guys do and some of the camaraderie, the hog hunts, the things like that, I think it might bring a lot more people out of their shell. So if, if we can talk for a minute or two about the different organizations and where they can find them. Yes, sir, you bet. Great point. There's Listen, there, there's hundreds of organizations out there will help you and your families uh, Veterans Extreme Adventures, right there in the metro, VXA, Josh Durden, and uh, Matthew Yates, that crew, you know, they they do hunts for vets, they take them fishing, I mean, there's just so many out there, some of them coming up, Helicopters for Heroes is another big one, we do a helicopter hog hunt down in Ennis, Texas, last three days, and I've flown for them doing those. Helicopters for Heroes is is one that does helo hog hunts every year in February in Ennis, Texas. There's Young County Warrior Ranch that we have here in Graham, Texas. We do a helo hog hunt in March. And there's there's just so many good organizations out there. Um, TF Dagger, Special Operations Warrior Foundation, you know, I just, I can't name all of them, man, and just reach out to them and, and contact them, and you don't have to go and fly, you don't have to go hunt, I mean, we have guys come to these events, they just hang out, and I can't tell you how many vets have come up to me after a Hilo hog hunt and thanked me and told me, hey, man, you saved my life. That's fact. That's fact. Yeah, well, it's a it's a powerful thing. And I think when used properly, it can be a, a big thing in people's life. I know I want to go fly with you. Um, yeah. So I just want to see what you can do in the old bird now. Um, yeah. 
I, I want to play one more thing for you, and then we're going to wrap it up here. Um, I'm, I want to play uh, the Night Stalker's Creed for you, and then I want you to tell me what it means to you, okay? The Night Stalker Creed. Service in the 160th is a calling only a few will answer, for the mission is constantly demanding and hard. And when the impossible has been accomplished, the only reward is another mission that no one else would try. As a member of the Night Stalkers, I am a tested volunteer seeking only to safeguard the honor and prestige of my country by serving the elite Special Operations Soldiers of the United States. I pledge to maintain my body, mind, and equipment in a constant state of readiness, for I am a member of the fastest deployable task force in the world, ready to move at a moment's notice, anytime, anywhere, arriving time on target, plus or minus 30 seconds. I guard my unit's mission with secrecy, for my only true ally is the night and the element of surprise. My manner is that of the special operations quiet professional. Secrecy is a way of life. In battle, I eagerly meet the enemy, for I volunteer to be up front where the fighting is hard. I fear no foe's ability, nor underestimate his will to fight. The mission and my precious cargo are my concern. I will never surrender. I will never leave a fallen comrade to fall into the hands of the enemy, and under no circumstances will I ever embarrass my country. Gallantly will I show the world and the elite forces I support that a Night Stalker is a specially selected and well-trained soldier. I serve with the memory and pride of those who have gone before me, for they love to fight, fought to win, and would rather die than quit. Night Stalkers, don't quit. Yes, sir, absolutely. It's in, And it's just not the Night Stalker Creed. It's every creed that every special operations warrior lives by. And it goes back to the Ranger Creed and all the other units, SF, Delta, whoever. But number one is that you won't fail your comrades. I mean, I don't care how bad it gets, been there, been with the guys, no matter how bad it gets, you never quit, ever. Greg, I you don't know how much I appreciate you coming on here. This was absolutely Man. fantastic. We're going to go over a couple things. One, if you want to find out more about Greg, you want to find out about his book, or you want to purchase some things from his organization, Go to www.deathweightsinthedark.com. You can pick up the book, and there's a couple different ways you can pick up the book. Um, they have some stuff going right now to where uh, they will not only give you a hardback book, but they'll give you a, a challenge coin that goes with it. All you have to do is go to deathweightsinthedark.com. You can pick up hats there. You can pick up the book. You can pick up the challenge coins there. And you can find out a little more about Greg and about George Hand that wrote this book with him. Uh, anywhere else that they can find you that you can tell us about, um, that's the only one I know is deathweightsinthedark.com. And then I've just found you kind of, you're all over the internet with little stories about you. <laughs> oh, yes, sir. There's, I've got, Facebook page, Instagram, Death Waits in the Dark. And I've done, goodness gracious, probably nine or ten podcasts are out there. Uh, I would like to mention the Warriors Journey. Okay. That's another organization, nonprofit. They they actually helped me with printing the book and helped me put this thing together for George and I. 
just a great organization. It's a faith-based organization. And, you know, if you ever need anything from them, just contact them. They're just, they're awesome folks. But uh, the the Kindle version or the ebook is out on Amazon right now. I just finished uploading last week the Audible version of the book that, yes, Kyle Lamb talked me into reading, reading it <laughs> for that. So <laughs> don't laugh too hard. I mean, it, it was, yeah, it was, it, it's a lot of work. It really is. The hardbacks. You should have had him. You should have had him read his foreword. Yeah. I, you know, I should have. <laughs> Doggone it. Yeah. He Doggone made you do that. You should have made him read the foreword that he put in there. It, yes, sir. And we just, I just got 2,000 of the softbacks, they'll be up on Amazon. The most important thing is that all my proceeds are donated 100%. And they're donated to nonprofits that help vets, first responders, and their families. So I'm, I mean, God's blessed me with a good income. And it was just, you know, that's just what I was supposed to do. So I've, I've donated twelve thousand dollars so far in December. It, it, it's from amazing the book sales. So, Greg, yeah, you, you just, are yeah, uh, this you are an amazing man. Uh, you have been there, done that, seen that. I said I was so happy that you said you would come on the show. Your book is fantastic. What you do for veterans is fantastic. I'll put the link to all those organizations that you said. Uh, I'll put them up on the group page so that you can see them there. And then for a couple of the organizations, all tied in with the podcast and the vodcast. Uh, if you want more of us, you can go to Twitter at Doublespeak DJ. You can go to Facebook at the DTD Podcast, or you can go on YouTube at the DTD Podcast. Remember, the best stories are true. That's why the DTD Podcast is here. I'm DJ. That's Greg. This has been the show. We'll catch you on the next one. See you guys. <laughs>